Glad you are here. We are kicking off our uh, summer teaching series. I'm always excited to kind of make this transition because I try, usually try to do something different than I uh, do the rest of uh, the rest of the year. Uh, and so what we're going to be doing uh, in July, uh, August, and September is we're going to work through the book of Ephesians together, uh, which is fun. I, I enjoy that opportunity. Normally, I do uh, topical uh, series, uh, but exegetical preaching. Uh, and this is going to just be exegesis all the way, all the way through uh, as we look at it. So I thought it might be helpful um, to kind of just lay out some things that are important for us. Uh, one of the things that is really important to me is that uh, when I took vows of ordination, they said, preach the word. It was one of the first things they say to you. And that means you preach what the Bible says, amen? I don't get to preach my thoughts and my stuff. You know, I'll try and make application, that kind of thing, but I preach the word. And so um, <clears throat> we're going to kind of work through some of these passages, and there's just some really good stuff uh, in, in all of them. But sometimes when we read Scripture, we read Scripture like it was written last week and in America, and it's not like that at, at all. And so I just kind of want to remind you uh, how much context matters. The, the, early, the, the latest scriptures, the most recent scriptures were written more than 2,000 years ago. I mean, think about that, 2,000 years ago. Thousands of miles away uh, in a culture that's more Eastern than Western, in the Middle East is where, where the scriptures were written for the most part and a very different kind of a political system. I mean, we get to vote, right? Whether you like what gets elected, we get to vote. But they had an emperor, and they had all kinds of kings and all sorts of uh, things like that. So a completely different uh, political system, a different way of looking at the world. Uh, so it was just very, very, very different. Uh, and in order to understand Scripture, sometimes you have to understand how they looked at the world how their world worked. And I do that often with the original language, and we kind of talk about that. But the cultural experience is important uh, as well. So this morning, since we're going to be in Ephesians for a while, I want to do a little bit of introduction about uh, Ephesians. Ephesians is a book that was written to a city called Ephesus. Say Ephesus. Okay? And so Ephesus uh, was, was in Turkey. This is Turkey here. Uh, and so it's right on the harbor here. You can kind of see down here is Cyprus and Lebanon and uh, Jerusalem and Israel's down there. Uh, this is the Greek uh, peninsula here. So you have Athens and Corinth is across. And then this is uh, Italy up here, up, at, up to Rome. Uh, and so uh, it, the fact that it was on the seashore uh, made, it, made it very, very, um, a very prosperous uh, going kind of place. It was a big harbor. It, it bustled. The community was very wealthy because of that. But it was also very diverse because people came from all over the world to, to be at Ephesus, whether they were traveling through, uh, whether they would set up, you know, places of commerce there, you know, start a business there. It was just a wildly, wildly diverse uh, sort of place uh, for them. Um, and so the difficulty for them was, and you'll see this through as we move through Ephesians, is they're constantly kind of having to deal with the question, how can we become one when we're so different from each other? Kind of sounds like today, amen, in this world with all of this kind of stratification and, and all of the, the, you know, kind of moving to the corners of the whole sort of thing. That same sort of thing uh, happened uh, to them as well. And so um, Paul spent three years living in Ephesus, who was the author of Ephesians. Um, and so he knew the people uh, really, really well and was very connected to them. Uh, so uh, in Ephesus, there was one thing that Ephesus was really, really, really known for over everything else, uh, and that's the temple of Artemis. Say Artemis. 
Artemis is a Greek god, uh, sometimes known as Diane. Uh, and this is kind of a picture of what she looked like there, based on their sort of thing. Uh, and this is the temple of Diane, uh, or Artemis. And it, it's kind of a, a big thing. It, it played a big, big role in the Ephesians' life and what they did. It took them 120 years to build this. So you're talking generation after generation after generation that is working on this. And it lasted for almost 1,000 years. In fact, today you can go there and still see some of the ruins uh, of it. Um, and so uh, in Ephesus, uh, Paul and, and John both went through Ephesus and, and, and talked to them. Uh, and they spent their time usually uh, battling with the, the worshipers of Artemis. There was this tension between Christianity and Artemis and how, how that worked. And that becomes important later on, especially when we start talking about uh, women in ministry, because there's a very specific context uh, in, in Ephesians, it's a part of that. And uh, Paul uh, began to win a lot of people to Christ. And so that created tension. And if you know the story, he got into all kinds of trouble uh, there. Another interesting fact about, uh, about Ephesians, Ephesus, uh, is that uh, according to tradition, uh, Mary and the apostle John spent their, their final years there. Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, spent a number of years there. And in fact, uh, if you were to go today, they will show you a place that they believe is the, uh, is the home that Mary lived in and the grave where John was buried. I don't know if that's absolutely true. It's really hard to figure that stuff out for 2,000 years. But th very likely they did uh, live in, in that place. And just a reminder that, that uh, Ephesus is not a Jewish community. It's a Gentile community. It's got a lot of Romans in it and Greeks in it and then people from all over uh, the world. So uh, as we start into this, I want us to, to do a memory verse again, just because I think it's good to, for us to come back to that. And so uh, the, the passage is, is found um, in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, because this kind of sums up the book of Ephesians, what they're writing about. So it says, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. So let's say that together, okay? Be Yeah, and that, those were Paul's words to a church that was deeply divided over all kinds of things, especially uh, some, some, real, um, some real things with, with who was in and who was out of the kingdom uh, and religious participation. So um, the, the, the kind of the theme of, of this whole thing uh, is this. Uh, how you treat people matters to God. How you treat people matters to God. He pays attention to that. And there's a meme that's kind of floating around that I thought captured this uh, pretty well. Uh, so when we think about how we treat people, it's pretty easy to treat the people you love well. And the meme says this, the real test of love is how you treat Judas, not Jesus. Yeah, anyone else feel under conviction with that one, you know? The, how you treat Judas is the test of love. That one that's out, that's a, that's a problem. So let's jump in. If you have your Bibles, turn over to uh, Ephesians. We're going to jump in right at chapter 1, uh, verse 1 uh, together. So Ephesians 1, uh, 1 through 14, and we're just going to take this in logical chunks uh, that go together. And sometimes that's hard to figure out. Uh, in, in Greek, in the ancient text, uh, there is no punctuation and there's no capitalization. So sometimes figuring out where the beginning, there's ways of doing that, but, but sometimes it's a little hard. And this is a part of a very long uh, sentence that runs on forever and ever and, and ever. Uh, so 
uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will, will of God. That was important because some people tried to say he wasn't really apostle. So he says, by God's will, I'm an apostle. To God's holy people in Ephesus. And so Ephesus is a pretty, pretty healthy church. It's not an unhealthy church, okay? The faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise for spiritual blessings in in Christ. And that's, that's a pretty standard uh, greeting. Uh, I have a lot of my uh, friends who are more religious than I am that are pastors that on every, every email, everything they say, grace and peace to you. Uh, so that's, that's just the standard they've gotten that. Now we're going to get into what he really wants to talk about here. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so what he's going to talk about, this is kind of the, the thesis sentence for this next section we're going to look at. He wants to talk about the fact that God has tremendously blessed you with spiritual blessings. Really? Okay. God has tremendously blessed you with spiritual blessings. Yes. There we go. Okay. That is, that is the truth. So now he's going to kind of lay that out uh, for, for us. us. Um, um, for he chose us, us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoptions as son and sons and daughters through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Now, I need to pull this uh, apart a little bit here uh, uh, to, to kind of get, get, get a hold of this. The big word that people get hung up on is this word is predestined or destiny, but the, we, your destiny is known ahead of time is the way we kind of do that. That English word probably doesn't get at the Greek word very well. Uh, but in the Greek, it's pretty clear that he's not talking about our particular destiny as to where we are going to go, but he's talking about God's purposes. God has predestined his purposes. His desire, his purpose is that everyone, everyone would be adopted as sons and daughters. From the beginning, before we were even formed, he desired that we would all be a part of his family and become uh, a part of it. Uh, so he's referring to God's sovereign purposes. And there's a couple ways to think about this as I've, I've thought about this. Um, one of the things that, that, is, uh, that I, I've noticed in some, in some th families is that some families have expectations about what their children should do for a living. Okay, There are certain families and even certain cultures that very much expect their children to become doctors, right? And, and what happens in that moment is mom and dad say, you're going to be a doctor. And I know that pressure because I grew up in a medical family and in a small community, and everybody in the community thought I was going to be a doctor. They were like, you should be a doctor. I think you'd be a good doctor. Doctors were saying this to me. They were volunteering to write letters, you know, to recommend me, to get me into medical school. The only problem with that is I would be a disaster as a doctor. I would kill people. I mean, I'm serious, not on purpose, but, you know, I'm ADHD. I don't pay attention to details, man. I'd get into surgery and be doing stuff and, you know, kind of would close them back up and, oh, we left two sponges in there. You know, it's like, oh, I'm back up, they die. Or, you know, I, I just wouldn't be good at it. They had a purpose, they thought, for me, but it wasn't what God had equipped me uh, to do. Um, or, or, or sometimes when we think about this, this purpose sort of thing um, and, and God's purposes for people, I, I think about kind of an experience I had when I got cancer. And if you don't know, a couple of years ago, I had really, really deadly cancer and God healed me. It's kind of an amazing sort of thing that God did. But in that time when I first got cancer and it looked like I might not make it, uh, my, uh, I didn't have any grandchildren, and surprise, surprise, both of them got pregnant pretty fast. Just get cancer, it'll get your grandkids fast. You know. 
no, don't. That's not a good way to do that. But I remember that process before there, and I, I remember thinking, you know, what, what if I'm not going to live to see my grandkids? And so I had kind of written a little letter that I was going to give to my kids, and the heart of that letter was, be sure and tell your children they were loved before they were born. Right? And I think all of you are parents. They were loved before they were born. That I desired good for them. That I prayed for them before. I still pray for more grandchildren. I'm praying for, you know, dozens of them would be great. Don't tell my kids. And that's what this means, that you were loved. You were loved before you were born. Before the creation of the world, God knew you and loved you and called you and desired that you would be a, a, a part of a part of his family. And so let me kind of say it this way. God has chosen you to be his son or daughter, not his servant. How, how many of you ever watch like those English PBS programs? My wife really likes those. What's it, Downton Abbey? How many of you seen Downton Abbey, you know? Yeah, okay, you all confess, and some of you are like, you don't want to admit it, but you really liked it. It's actually a good program, which is saying a lot for me because she had to drag me into it. But, but, but one of the things you see in Downton Abbey is they have these servants, right? And, and, and when the family's having a meal, you know, the servants are standing around kind of the outsider. They're at the door kind of listening. Oh, somebody's running out of water. Yeah, sir, can I help you with that water? And they give them the water. And, and then there's somebody over, oh, they need a little more food, so they come over and they give them a little, can we, can we take that plate? Can we take that tray? See, God didn't call you to that. God called you to family to sit down at the meal. You are one of us. You're one of the the family of God. You're you're an insider in all of this. God has chosen you to sit down at the table and enjoy the fellowship. Have some ham. Well, maybe not for Jews, but but have have some more of whatever we're doing here. And then I I love that the sons and daughters, I should back up just a bit here. Uh, It talks about... Yeah, well, let's go forward here. Um, but, but it says in there, did you notice it said that it brings God pleasure to do that? Do you know that you bring God pleasure? Yeah, evangelicals are not convinced of this. We, we have spent so much time under preaching that condemns and tells you all the things you're doing wrong and you better do this or you're going to, da 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 that it's very hard for us when Scripture says God finds pleasure in you. Now, you... you you guys find pleasure in your children? I mean, not all the time, but m- most of the time. Amen? Amen? So it's not such a big leap that God would find pleasure in you, even when you're not perfect, right? I love my kids even when they're flawed, and I find pleasure in them. And God said that there is, there, he has pleasure in, in you. Uh, the same way that children bring pleasure to a parent, you bring pleasure to God. And the, this whole idea of this meal together and this thing is, goes right to the idea of what we do at communion. Every time we come to the Lord's table, you are reminded you are not a servant, you're a son or a daughter of the living God. And that he invites you to his table. And that we love one another. That's why we have that big thing out there. We are family, friends who are like family. Because at the end of the day, biologically, your blood makes you family. But in the kingdom of God, it's the blood of Jesus Christ that makes you family. And we are family. Say, we are family. Yes. And so, uh, next verse, verse 6. In the praise, uh, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. So this whole thing comes from grace in all of this. And I keep trying to find new ways to say and define grace. Here's my latest one. Grace is extraordinary generosity on the part of God. Amen. Extraordinary generosity. You get what you don't deserve 
And mercy means you don't get what you do deserve, but grace means you get what you, don't de- what you don't deserve, that God freely gives it to you. And there's an interesting play on words here with, with Paul. The word uh, given actually shares the same root as grace in this passage. So another translation of this might be, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has graciously given in the one that he loves. Grace upon grace uh, upon grace. The extraordinary generosity of God and the self-sacrificing love of God. In him, we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, he keeps coming back to this, that he has lavished on us with all wisdom and with understanding. So you know what redemption is? Redemption is to buy back what was already yours, right? And so in their culture, uh, they, the certain members of the family would have the opportunity if land had been sold to buy back that land so it stayed in the family. Or if someone had been sold into slavery because they couldn't pay their debts, maybe an uncle or someone along the line could buy that, that person back. But I, I think as much as those are, are helpful to me, here's the one I think about. I'm, and I just watch too much TV, but I watched a TV show just the other day where a kid was kidnapped. I would liquidate every asset I have to buy back my child. Amen? That was mine to begin with, but it don't matter. We're not going to argue justice in that moment. We're arguing love. And that's what he's saying to you. He gave his everything. He liquidated everything. Christ came in the flesh and died for you in order to buy you back, to bring you back in and offer you forgiveness of of sins, to redeem you in accordance with his riches and and through his grace that is a part of that. And and in that moment, he gives us this last last word. It's kind of like he's trying to express grace and say how big it is, and he's just running out of words that work. And so he runs onto this word called lavished on us. Say lavished. No, say lavished. Isn't that fun to say? It's just a fun word to, to kind of say uh, when we do that. And, and so uh, lavish carries the idea of over the top, ridiculously too much, right? This is like when I went to my mother-in-law. Her way of showing love was through food, right? So it was like you pile it on, you pile it on, you finally get it cleared off. She's like, oh, you need more food. I'm like, no, please, no more food. You know, it just piles it on. Uh, embarrassingly too much, outrageous, flashy. And here's the one I like best wasteful. Wasteful. Lavish is wasteful in this thing. And so um, God does, does not ration grace. He flings it around wastefully. <laughs> I, I think that's, that's really true. That's what lavish kind of means. We get this idea, especially us evangelicals. I don't know what it is with us. We get the idea that when it comes to grace, God is Scrooge, right? It's got a little bit of grace for you. Listen, you little urchin, here's some for you right now. But you be careful with that. That should last you a week. And don't come back and ask me for any more. You know? Nervous laughter because they're all going, yeah, that's kind of what I think, you know? But that's not what Scripture said. Scripture says it's lavish. It's like taking giant buckets of, of grace and just pouring it all over everybody. You know, pour it on you, pour it on you, pour it on you. It's running all over and it's getting wasted. And then he just kind of picks it up and swings it around and gets everybody wet. It's the, the world's greatest water fight, only it's lavish grace. Do you understand how God looks at you and how God relates to you and how much he cares about you in all of this. It's kind of like God has lost his mind. What are you doing? You're wasting grace. And the father and the son say, yes, exactly. We'll pour it out every place we we can in every way we can. 
You don't understand how generous God is with his grace. Why can't we be more like that? Why can't we be lavish in our grace? I mean, the context here is they're fighting. And Paul is saying to them, God has been lavish. He's been pouring grace all over you with all of your flaws and all of your mistakes and all of the broken places. Somebody say amen in there, broken places in your life, okay? Because I'm a pastor. I've heard enough of your stories to know there's lots and lots of brokenness and flaws, including standing right up here on the platform. And God lavishly pours himself out to us, pours grace on us everywhere. Maybe that's what it looks like to be like Jesus, to be lavish in our grace. Moving on. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ Jesus. This is a funny one, right? Because he said, he made known to us the mystery. It's like Paul saying, yeah, I don't understand it either, but I know he does it, you know. He just pours grace out everywhere. To a Jew, this would make no sense. They had rules, and you followed the rules, and then you were taken in. But if you didn't follow the rules, then you're out. There's old grace and, and lavish grace kind of thing. And he said, it's a mystery. It's beyond human understanding that God would be so gracious with us. But it is the reality in this, that everyone gets grace poured out on them, even Gentiles, you Jews, and even Jews, you Gentiles. All of those different people in there, it matters to them. And the scandal that it would be to do all of this, they're sinners, they're outsiders, they're, they're wicked people, they don't keep the rules. And yet he pours lavishly on them. To be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity in all things, in all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. This is where he takes a little bit of a turn. He's talking about the lavishness of God's grace. And now he takes a, a turn, uh, and he, he says to them that in, in the midst of all of this, in the redemption uh, of all things that he is going to do, that there is coming a time when he's going to fix it all. We live in a broken world, amen? Sinful, destructive, painful. We are blessed to live in America because we don't have to experience a lot of that pain. But all over the world, there is so much pain going on uh, in, in, our, in our world. And he is saying to them that he is going to redeem all things, okay? Bring them to fulfillment in that. That one day there is going to be a new heaven and a new earth and there will be no more pain and no more sorrow and no more crying and no more... Somebody say amen in here, okay? Yeah. You don't got to like my preaching, but that's truth, folks. And that is really good truth. And so he's saying in the midst of the suffering and all this and struggling to forgive each other and give each other lives, I just want to remind you that one day, one day God is going to fix this broken world and he's going to fix us. Amen. Praise be to God. There is coming a day when God is going to make everything right. In the world, the world that we want to live in, the injustice that's out there. There's, there's also a little bit of a warning in all of that, and that is this. In a world filled with injustice, God is not fooled. You are not hiding it from him. And he's keeping track. He offers you grace and mercy and love and every opportunity. He gives his life in order to pull you back. But one day we will stand before him, and you want to take advantage of his grace, Amen. You want to be a part of that. We want you with us for eternity in this world. Verse 11. In him, we were also chosen, 
having been predestined according to the plan he called us, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, right? Predestined for his, his purposes uh, in, in this world. So let me say this the, way, the best way I know how. It is this. God chose you. God chose you and you and you and you and you, 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 you. God chose you. And if you think God didn't chose you, you're wrong. You may not like it, but you're wrong. There aren't very many times when I can say I'm absolutely right, but this is one of those places where I can say I'm absolutely right. And if you disagree with me, not disagree with me, you're disagreeing with Scripture and all of it. God chose you. Say it to your neighbor. Say, God chose you. Yeah, and he chose you before the world came, before you had done anything good to earn it or bad to be rejected about it. He chose you. He, he's chosen you from the beginning of, the t- of time, and that's why that word predestined. He's chosen you to be a part of it. It's not mechanical, it's relational. In the same way that you pre-love your, your children. And when you, reje- when, when you rejected it and walked away, he chose you again. And again, and again, and again, and he just keeps choosing you. He will hunt you down. In fact, one of the things, one of the things, one of the words that some people sometimes use for the Holy Spirit is the hound of heaven, right? And he just keeps choosing you and chasing you down and, and coming after you and speaking to you through other people. And then there's these spiritual things that happen that are kind of weird. And you're like, what is that sort of thing? And that's God choosing you over and over and over again. He wants to pull you back into relationship with him. And he did that in order that we, who are the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Say, praise of his glory. Yeah, um, some of you know I I like to tell the story about my dad. uh, Because my dad, before he became a follower of Jesus, lived a very wicked life. Very, very wicked life. Um, He was very clear with me that he probably should have spent a significant amount of time in prison uh, he, he was a part of a biker gang when biker gangs were not $25,000 Harleys with lawyers on them. They were bad people. And one day he finally, his, and talk about praying and chasing. His, his mother, uh, my grandmother, was just about that tall, right? But I'm telling you, when it came to prayer, she was like, you know, a giant. And she prayed for him, and she prayed for him, and she prayed for him, and God had to turn his life completely, ruin it. He was homeless. He went all the way down to homelessness before he turned his life over to Christ. But I never knew that one. But I saw what God can do in a life to take this awful man, this evil man, and change him into a wonderful husband and father and, and leader of his family who cared about people and who reached out. I tell that story. You know why I love to tell that story? That it might be for the praise of his glory. Because it's only God that can do that. I, you heard I had cancer a number of years, a couple of years ago, and I had the kind that normally kills people. Eventually it'll get you. And God did a miracle. Even the doctors were saying, you must have some connection upstairs. And I'm like, you have no idea, you know. <laughs> God did a miracle in all that. Why? To the praise of, of his glory. It's not me. I can't heal myself. I can't hardly even, you know, get along and manage life. Would that my whole life would be made in such a way that people would look at me and say, how great is his God? Okay? To the praise and, and his glory. 
And you also were intended in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of salvation. You are included uh, when you believed. You were marked in, uh, in him with a seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit. I have really tried to figure out how to communicate this idea of a seal because we don't really use seals uh, anymore in, in our world. Um, uh, but, but the truth of the matter is, it's really an important concept. So I finally figured it out this week. I don't know why it took me so long. My wife uh, grew up on a working farm with a ton of cow, beef cattle uh, there. And uh, every once in a great while, my, my father-in-law would try and get me engaged in the work on the farm when we were there. Uh, and so I remember when branding time came that he got me down there on the big field and the ones that needed to be branded, they would get them in and they'd run them through a, a squeeze chute. You know what that is, where you can kind of squeeze them down. Those of you, how many of you have been involved in branding at some point? Yeah. Um, so they get them in there, uh, and then, there's, then somebody's got this, this brand, this metal thing that is a, a logo kind of like thing in it that belonged to him and, and to that, that ranch, you know, and they'd get that thing red hot, and then they'd poke that cow in the bottom with that thing. Turns out they don't like that very much, um, you know, and, and then there would be a scar that would, that would leave a mark that would say, this cow belongs to Sid Roth. And if his cows got out, which they did from time to time and got somewhere else, some of the other farmers could go look, oh, hey, that's Sid's cow. They'd call him up and say, hey, Sid, you need to come get your cows. And the other farmers did the same thing. If someone got on his property, he'd go down, oh, that's John's over there. Hey, John, we got your cows over here. You need to, you need to get them back over there. Because the, the brand, the seal, identified who they belonged to. So let me say it to you this way. You bear in your soul the seal of the God of the universe. He has branded you. You are his. And you may forget that you are his, but you are his based on the brand that is in you, that is on you. That, that, that you belong to God and there's nothing the devil can do to you. He doesn't have ownership of you. I mean, he can talk to you and try and scare you, maybe try and talk you out of it, but he can't hurt you. You belong to God. You belong to God. Okay, look at the person next to you say, you belong to God. Okay, good. So here's just a couple of examples in the ancient world, okay? They, the rings were very common, and this is kind of the ring and then kind of what it would look like. And that's another seal, and you can't really see it very close, but it doesn't look like much there, but you can kind of see what it's there. And they, they used them all the time to say who was in charge, who was the boss, who you would answer to uh, if, you, uh, if you broke that seal. So let me kind of wrap this up real quick and make a couple of points here. Uh, 14, uh, who is in his deepest guaranteeing your inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession in the praise of his, to the praise of his glory. So the Holy Spirit is the deposit in heaven, right? So when you make a deposit, it means you got something coming, right? Yeah, you know, yeah that's what it means. But I want to move on. I want to get to this. Paul is reminding those who are in, the Jews, that those who you think are out, the Gentiles, are in by God's extraordinary generosity, by his grace in all of this. That, that God has brought them into the, the kingdom of God. He has lavishly wasted his grace on these stupid Gentiles. Yeah, you should all laugh because I think almost all of us are Gentiles and we're here today because God wasted his grace on some crazy Gentiles back in that time. So let me think about this for a minute. It is possible that there are people who you and I think are out and God says are in. Amen? Amen? Okay. We don't get to judge. We can't judge. We can't see a heart. And, and the truth of the matter is Paul is pushing back on the insiders in all of this. 
So if we, we, that was the Jews. So we bring it forward to the 21st century America. Who are the insiders today? Don't be quiet. We are the insiders today. Amen? I have been in the church of Jesus Christ for generations. I am ordained. I'm called to protect the faith and guard our theology and preach the word. I'm an insider. And this is a challenge to all of us who have been insiders in the church that it just might be that there's some people that I am persuaded are out and God has lavishly poured grace on them and they're in. Amen? Amen? And so, the second thing, Paul reminds them that what binds us together is vastly more important than what separates us. What binds us together is vastly more important than what separates us. Don't let little things that don't matter for eternity separate us from one another one another. And here's the final kind of truth, and that's this. As followers of Jesus, we are blessed beyond all reason. If our worship team would come, amen? amen? We have all these great spiritual blessings that are going in all of this. Lord, help us to be generous with our grace, extraordinarily generous with our grace. And so the final question, what does Jesus want you to do with what you've heard this morning? Is there someone you need to give grace to? Is there some place where you need to be lavish with God's grace and God's love? Someone where you're being Scrooge and you're holding it back and God is saying, no, 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 no. I gave my all for you. What does Jesus want you to do? Father God, Lord, I find this passage challenging (laughs) because frankly, sometimes I'm Scrooge with grace. And so, Father, I pray that you would change me and that you would change us. Make us like Jesus. Make us lavish in our love for the world around us. Make us uh, just pour it all over and make it wasteful so that a lot of it hits the ground, Father. Honestly, Lord, sometimes when grace seems like it's wasted, we want to pull back and say, okay, no more grace for you. I gave you grace and you didn't do anything about it. That's not what you did. And, Father, frankly, that's not what you did with me. And so, Father, I pray that you would remind us of all you have done for us in Christ Jesus, and you would make us lavish in our grace and remind us of the blessings you have poured out. And we ask this in Jesus' name.